Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Many days I just think to myself, wow, would it be so much easier if I just lived my life moment by moment uh, without thinking about what's going on or why it's going on or even caring if things are going on. I just memorize all the stats of every cub that ever played, maybe just work in the yard or just make something. But for those of us that care about the state of the country and the world and try to stay informed, well, it's a nightmare. <laughs> hey, welcome to mine. Now, on today's episode, first we're going to do a little engineering, and then we're going to replace prayer with porn. So, go find your French curve and your protractor, and then stare straight at the ground. Because regardless of what might be happening right now, here we go. So, I read a number of news stories and think, ah, that'd be a good one to talk about. Something back in the olden days that I'd post something about on the old Facebook, but I don't want to just rant. Well, I mean, I, I do. I actually do just want to rant, but that's not the point of this podcast. I want to be able to look at things from a different perspective. Today's perspective, I think, could be summed up by using Proverbs eighteen seventeen: The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. I like the Young's literal translation here. Righteous is the first in his own cause. His neighbor cometh and hath searched him. I mean, how ominous sounding, right? And if you read it in the Pigeon Bible, which, which is also fantastic, the first person we judge matter, they be like, say they right, until another person come ask him question. I mean, isn't that great? There's so many red squiggles there. Anyway, I'm sure that you've all heard of the train derailment and subsequent disaster of unknown proportion in East Palestine, Ohio, a mere 260 miles from where I live. There's been a lot of general reporting on this accident, <clears throat> a lot of downplaying the severity, for some reason mostly seen on the left, a lot of dramatizing of the situation, mostly seen on the right, you know, with statements like, is this our Chernobyl? And no, no. No, it's not. But very little apolitical reporting from what I've seen has been done. And of course, we're blaming the rail owners, we're blaming the hot boxes, we're blaming maintenance, we're blaming Biden and Booty Gig, and they're blaming Trump, and we're blaming greedy capitalists and chemical companies and pretty much everything you could think of. Additionally, this was totally an accident. It was neglect. It was intentional. It was sabotage. And it's been planned for months for such a time as this, whatever time this is. And all of them seem right until another person come ask them question. Now, I'm not an investigative reporter. I'm not going to compile all sides of every story, try to parse it out here. I'm going to give you my perspective, my opinion on essentially one aspect of this incident and we're going to start with an article found on FreightWaves.com, headline, Norfolk Southern Eliminated Key Maintenance Role in Derailment Region, Union Says. Now, 
Right off the bat, this causes me an eye roll, as I'm not a union fan. I do believe that unions were created with a very needed, very specific purpose. I believe just as strongly that they have now lost their way. I blame the leadership for the most part, to be honest. I mean, in general, the love of money has really screwed over their own membership. That's my position. That said, unions are made up of people. And I'd say that most of those people are conscientious workers who want to do what they've been rigorously trained to do, and they want to do it to the best of their ability, and they want to do it because they find value and importance in it. Plus, I mean, you know, they want to make a solid living. So when something like this headline pops up, you really need to look further. We don't want to be like most of the mouth-breathing scrollers, instantly deciding either, yep, just like a greedy company, they don't care about people or only money. Or, and just like these greedy unions, wanting companies to have massive workforce people doing next to nothing. Now the byline is apparently a quote from someone in the union, quote, there used to be something called maintenance. This, of course, caught my attention as my career of now over 22 years has been almost entirely as a reliability engineer, a maintenance guy. So the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen Union have questioned what they've perceived to be declining maintenance standards. According to the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, the cause of this derailment was a failed wheel bearing. According to the article, something else we've heard a lot about in recent days, is that there are devices along the track that could alert the train engineer that a defect exists, called a hotbox or hotbox detector. Basically, it's infrared detectors looking up at the train car bogey wheel assemblies as they pass overhead, looking for an elevated temperature. Now, according to the Federal Railroad Administration, the FRA, there are hot boxes set up about every 25 miles along a railroad. They started to be put in, at least it appears, in the late 80s, and have helped to dramatically reduce train accidents since their introduction. An official from the union, however, said that because of headcount cutting, these hot boxes are not being maintained properly anymore. Norfolk Southern used to have five employees in this rail network area that would maintain the hot boxes, but today, none. These individuals, called electronic loaders, were experts in these detection systems, but the responsibility has been passed to younger, made it very clear lower paid, less experienced signal maintainers who are spending the bulk of their time on government-mandated tests rather than performing maintenance. The union representative said that these young guys have no knowledge and no training. And then he walked it back a little bit, quote, very, very little training on these hotbox detectors. And he continued, quote, there used to be something called maintenance, and it was routinely maintaining your apparatus, not just strictly going there when you have a regulated test. So clearly, this is the problem, right? Well, farther up in the article, we see a throwaway line right after stating that declining headcount means these things aren't maintained properly that said, quote, the FRA, remember that's Federal Railroad Administration, the FRA has no regulations requiring the use or maintenance of hotbox detectors. And then after that, quote, a hotbox detector in East Palestine notified the crew moments before the train derailed, according to the NTSB's report. So it was working. And then, quote, 
It's unclear if any hotbox detector prior to East Palestine notified crews. A surveillance video shared on Facebook from an industrial facility in Salem, Ohio, about 20 miles from East Palestine, suggests the train's axle was already on fire. But, I mean, it only suggests, right? And even so, if these hotbox detectors are 25 miles apart, and this image was from 20 miles before the East Palestine hotbox, would 5 miles be enough to heat up and catch the grease on fire? Because metal doesn't burn. It would have been a grease fire. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. I guess I'd wonder, where was the last hot box they crossed? Now, incidentally, I did watch the little surveillance video, and yeah, it absolutely shows a bogey wheel on fire. It was a freight car right ahead of the tankers. Surprise, surprise. Regardless, I did a lot of looking into train car wheels, wheel bearings, bogeys, to try to boil down this info for you, it used to be that each wheel and axle ran on a bushing, which is a softer metal sleeve, like a bronze bushing, which was in a box with oil-soaked packing that would lubricate the bushing. This is where the term hot box came from. When the oil was used up, the bushing would get hot inside the bearing box, a hot box. Today, each wheel has two large roller bearings. These are called tapered roller bearings because the rolling elements in the bearing are angled, kind of like a cone. They put these bearings back to back so that they force the wheel to center itself between the bearings due to the forces from the tapers. Now, one of the problems with this kind of detection is that both bearings would have to be pretty much failed on one wheel. As one starts to fail, the other bearing can actually carry the load just fine. I looked up some general train bogey wheel bearings on the SKF website, which SKF is a major bearing manufacturer. Bearings are usually given a maximum speed rating, a maximum load rating, and then a maximum rating for speed times load, a dynamic rating. This train was traveling at 47 miles per hour. When you do the math, that means that these wheel bearings we're turning about 440 RPM. Looking at the SKF table, a single bearing could easily carry the load of the wheel, and there's no way you get a train moving fast enough to exceed the speed rating. Now, two problems exist if one of these bearings does happen to fail. First, the wheel will experience some funny side loads because the two bearings are designed to work together to hold the wheel in place. Losing one bearing would make it want to shift because of that cone, so it would now be held in line by the rail down below and the axle up above. And then second, these two bearings are in the same housing. If one bearing failed, regardless of why, the metal bits would float around in the grease and would destroy the other bearing relatively quickly. The rule of thumb is for every one particle, you create seven more particles. So metal chunks from one bearing will destroy the other really quickly. Now, we can fault Norfolk Southern for eliminating headcount, and maybe that's something to look at. But the reality is everyone is trying to not only offer the lowest price for their goods or service in order to undercut the other guy, but they're also trying to maximize their profit in order to keep their investors and their stockholders happy. Now, is that right or wrong? Well, I mean, capitalism is literally the best system ever designed in the history of man, at least thus far, so we could debate if it's being done per the design. But beyond that, until someone comes up with a better system to do all the good that's been done in this world due to capitalism, like lifting people out of poverty, feeding the world, clean water, electricity, etc., etc., I'd say back off. In fact, don't forget what the article said. There are no regulations requiring the hotbox detectors. 
you do realize what that means, right? That means that the rail owners are putting them in on their own in order to try to improve safety. Now, what their motives are, who cares? They're spending their money that they don't have to to try to improve safety and reliability. That is due to capitalism. The problem with a wheel that's running at 440 RPM, it's, a, it's just very hard to spot a failure in the making. This is what we in the industry call a slow speed bearing. It's very hard to find a defect in a slow speed bearing using vibration analysis, for instance, because impacts from damage don't show up until much later in the failure. The temperature in a failing slow speed bearing generally doesn't elevate that much. Trust me, I know. I am a level 2 certified infrared thermographer, after all. And grease doesn't just light on fire. Now, gasoline is very volatile. It'll light up and flash very easily. You can take a jug of oil and toss a lit match into it, and the match will go out. Oil is not volatile. Grease is nothing but oil inside some sort of a carrier called a thickener. Now, trust me on this. I am a certified level 1 machinery lubricant analyst, after all. Yeah, well... I was, I've let that certification lapse, but they didn't come repossess the knowledge. The thickener is usually classified as a soap of some sort or a clay and is really not flammable. The oil, again, needs a sustained elevated temperature to light off. Ask my dad how many things he's torched off a rusty car in the great white north up there and how many times he's burned the garage down to the ground from grease just bursting into flame. I mean, it might light up a little bit, but in most normal cases, it's really not a big deal. So if this grease lit on fire, it would have had to have been metal on metal on one wheel, as in the rolling elements would have had to have been essentially destroyed inside the bearing, and then the bearing races would get cherry red hot, the grease would finally light off. At this point, however, the wheel would have been wobbling freely. It was a matter of time for it to flop just right to derail that bogey. One thing that would be very interesting to see is the condition of the wheel bearings when a hot box detector alerts that a defect was detected. I've kind of got a suspicion that the bearings are either nearly or completely destroyed by the time a detector would alert a high temp. Now, just a personal opinion, I think the only way they could reliably find this kind of defect very early in the failure mode would be to use ultrasonic sound detection. And this can hear what's going on inside of the bearing and can alert much quicker than vibration or temperature in a slow speed rolling situation. <sighs> Trust me, I am, or I, I was, again lapsed, a level one certified ultrasound analyst. The problem is that you'd need a detector literally on every bearing, or at least on the bearing set for every wheel, and then something, some computerized analysis program that, I don't know, maybe exists, that could listen to all of these sounds, all of these data points, and then alert to something unusual. I just got to feel that that would not be worth it. So, at this point, I want to switch focus just a little bit to a few other things I've been hearing during this terrible accident that from my chemical industry experience... I kind of take issue with, but keep the article and the comments that were made against Norfolk and against maintenance in mind. We'll put a nice bow on this shortly. So first, I've heard some commentators ask, why do we have more than one or a few cars of a hazardous substance like this per train? Um, well, sir, because you'd prefer not to pay a million dollars for your products. 
I think. Vinyl chloride is primarily used to make PVC pipe and products. You know, PVC, polyvinyl chloride. But do you have any idea how many highly hazardous, very toxic chemicals are used to make the completely safe products you use and consume every single day? Now, I worked in one facility that used a chemical, transported by rail in fact, that could basically damage your lungs to the point of death in concentrations so low you couldn't smell it. A lot of safety precautions, a bunch of detectors were used to monitor that process. And this chemical goes into the medicine caplets you take, the glues you use, the shampoos and conditioners, KY jelly. This is called chemistry, something I did horrible at in school. But the chemical reaction of very dangerous chemicals with other dangerous chemicals creates very safe, very useful chemicals. And second, why did they light the vinyl chloride off? Was that really the best thing to do? Well, in my opinion, that was the only option they had. They were stuck between a rock and a hard place. If they hadn't lit the chemical off, there was a chance it could have exploded. I'd suggest you go on YouTube, go to the Chemical Safety Board channel, look at what happens when a chemical explosion occurs in a pressure vessel. It's not good. But maybe it wouldn't have exploded. Well, the other alternative is to allow some or all of this toxic chemical seep into the soil or the water and then the water table, there was literally no good option here. In talking with a retired chemical industry safety and environment guy, uh, he agreed. Lighting this off was the only good option they had in a pile of just terrible options. And third, why are we transporting chemicals like these by rail? Well, because it's literally the safest way we have to move this stuff around. Now, how often do we hear of rail accidents that caused a release of some sort, versus how many millions of gallons or pounds of products are we transporting every single year. Furthermore, unfortunately, you can't just build a chemical plant at the source of everything you need to make what you're making. It's literally not possible. And with federal regulations as they've been tightened today, most of these chemical plants that make hazardous chemicals and transport them to the next step in the process could never be built today. Because of bodies like the EPA, our chemical infrastructure is, for the most part, set. What we've got is what we've got. So we need to transport products across the country. Rail is the safest way we have to do this. That is, unless you want to string pipelines everywhere, which I believe are even safer, but people screech about that too. Now, the number one problem in this entire incident has been transparency by Norfolk Southern, by the regulating bodies, by our government, by Petey, the Wonder Bootykin, and old Puddinhead Joe himself, or they self, I don't want to assume. Not only transparency, but communication as a whole. The people were given scarce information, sketchy information, if they were told anything at all. They're being told that everything is fine, don't worry about anything, not the smell, not the sheen in the water, not the dead and dying wildlife and pets, that's all just a coincidence. Now drink your rainbow water and shut up. Well, okay, so no, this wasn't pudding that spilled into the ground and into the water, and it wasn't a nice bonfire that was burning, this was toxic stuff, and burning it created more toxic stuff. Phosgene isn't anything to screw around with. DuPont had a man die a handful of years back in a chemical plant near me, walking through an area storing phosgene with hoses feeding it to the process. He walked past one of these phosgene cylinders, not knowing a hose was about to rupture in his face. So to tell everyone there, oh, it's fine. Well, I mean, maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. 
But there wasn't enough credible information coming out. Nobody knew what to believe. So, when nobody of any authority or any credibility fills the information vacuum, that's when the rumors start. That's when the conspiracy theories start. And now, we have no idea who or what to believe. We talk about gossiping and spreading rumors with regard to personally gossiping about someone else, but wouldn't many of the same scriptures apply to situations like this? What about Proverbs 26.22? The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. And I'm as guilty as anyone else. In fact, I've tried to be upfront about it in more recent days. Hey, what happened with so-and-so? And I don't actually need to know. You don't have to tell me. I'm just being nosy. Now, when it comes to accidents or tragedy like this, the reporters are all trying to get the scoop, you know, and then the people across the country want the juiciest rumors to be true. Did you hear how Trump caused this? Or why did the CDC mysteriously modify the toxicology report on this chemical only a few weeks before? Or whatever, right? Which all questions are valid. But then the rumors and the gossip starts, moving them from questions to accusations to verified fact, when no answers were ever given to the questions. This is just all conspiracy theories. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue, or by extension, what about the power of the pen or the video? We can terrify citizens, we can destroy friendships, we can damage companies, we can affect jobs, we can handcuff industry, which impacts everyone. Asking questions is fine, but unsubstantiated hit pieces like our article here have no benefit to society. It just creates more rumors. And as we all know, whoever speaks first sounds right. And unfortunately, by our nature, that's good enough. It sounds right, it's what I want to hear, so it's right as far as I'm concerned. But we need to let another person come ask him question. Maybe we should focus on asking questions, right? Waiting for answers, investigating as needed rather than what we really want to do. Maybe this was a normal train that had a slow speed bearing failure for whatever reason that wasn't picked up at a previous detector because it either wasn't hot enough or they weren't operable. And when the detector did pick it up, they tried to stop the train, but it was already too late. And that bogey jumped the track and a derailment occurred. Unfortunately, a handful of cars had a chemical used in various applications in industry that, like many chemicals, is toxic or hazardous, and due to the nature of the accident and the immediacy of the issue, the best decision was made as quickly as possible. So maybe the questions at this point need to be, why did the bearing fail? Did previous detectors fail, and if so, why? What should be done if something like this were to ever happen again? Where did the communication fall apart? And most importantly, are the people safe and how can we make them whole? And now we just need some answers. Well, my little babushkas, we meet again. As the Russian philosopher Yakov Smirnov says, Russian men have a saying, women are like buses. That's it. And, and oh, yeah, I am... Very sorry for the accent. It's all I've got, to be honest with you. Hey, welcome back to part eight of our look at the 45 communist goals for America as, and yes, I'm going to say it again, read into the congressional record in 1963 by a Democrat who would clearly not be a Democrat today. Might not be a Republican today either. He'd probably just be another name on the Clinton kill list for some reason. I mean, they're up to what, 50 or more now? Eventually we'll all be on there. Just like... Many people are surprised to hear that we have comedians in Russia, but they are there, 
they are dead, but they are there. <laughs> Thank you again, Yakov. So last week, we only covered two of the goals, both having to do with essentially shoving obscenity and pornography into the American society. You know, the communists don't believe in God, no matter what they say, no matter what Putin recently said, but they do have an understanding of morality. They don't have a moral giver, but they have an understanding of morality and the absolute destructive nature of a lack of morals. They understand, I guess, the mind or maybe the soul, although they wouldn't believe in a soul from a religious perspective. They know that if you can promote degeneracy in humanity, that the base animal instinct, or we'd call it the sin nature, will take over and that it will result in the crumbling of society. In fact, in the Soviet Union, under Stalin and then the Stalinist-type rule, prior to the fall in the early 90s, the manufacturing and distributing of pornography, if caught, would get you up to three years in prison. According to, and I'm going to probably butcher this name, Dima Vorobiev, a former Soviet propagandist in the USSR, quote, Stalinism decided that the New World had no use for people wasting their energies in the hollow pursuit of carnal gratification. It surely made much more sense for everyone to dedicate all their efforts to the building of a new, better society. He quotes the prime proletarian poet, oof, Mayakovsky, as penning, quote, to love means to dart out to the backyard and let your muscles play your axe, chopping the wood until the night sweeps its raven wing. With the fall of communism came the rush of pornography. The first issue of Russian Playboy in the former Soviet Union appeared in 1995, more than 40 years after it had started production in the United States. Of course, at the same time, the entire idea of sex was seen as something for procreation. Otherwise, yeah, not really needed. So although that wasn't exactly outlawed, well, the lack of privacy and all of the propaganda made it either illegal or undesirable. Pornography and the what some called puritanical propaganda regarding sex started for the most part around 1935 in the USSR. Meanwhile, recall from last week, the two goals we discussed both had to do with legalizing and shoving obscenity and pornography onto the American public. In fact, a film was developed in 1965 in the U.S. entitled Perversion for Profit. Although the YouTube channel, Old TV Time, gives this a description in part of, quote, often quite humorous film, which purports to speak about the cultural mores and their decline, advises us to be wary of pornography, which may appear at the local newsstand, malt shop, or drugstore. In reaction to perception of substantial growth in the distribution of pornographic material, homosexuality is considered pornographic per se. Now, I skipped my way through this 30-minute film, and the 1960s, well-suited, stuffy-looking, middle-aged man, well, he was right. The, the film was warning Americans that the industry was out of control. It was coming for your kids. It was going to severely damage humanity. And this, quote, often quite humorous film was deadly serious and exactly right. Remember, 1965, 12 years after Playboy first rolled off the presses, Seven years after the 45 communist goals were first revealed, two years after those goals were read into the congressional record. And in keeping with the uncomfortable theme of this episode, 
Goal number 26, quote, present homosexuality, degeneracy, and promiscuity as normal, natural, healthy. Yeah, well, in America, homosexuality and sodomy was outlawed until the 20th century, with the first real advocate for so-called gay rights being German immigrant Karl Schlegel, or more accurately, Reverend Karl Schlegel, a Presbyterian pastor around 1900. Now, that doesn't mean it didn't exist before then, but for the first two-thirds of our existence or so, it was not legal. It was not accepted. It was not promoted or glorified. As the 20th century rolled on, there were some homosexual undertones in radio and movies. Of course, promiscuity has always been the trend that has been out in front, greasing up that slippery slope for all sorts of degenerate sexual practices to slide on down at full speed. In 1958, the Supreme Court ruled that a gay publication, One Inc., was not obscene and was protected by the First Amendment. Recall, goal number 24 was to use the argument of free speech and free press to get rid of censorship. Finally, in the late 60s, the gay liberation movement rode the coattails of civil rights, black power, anti-war, feminism, to make their case as well. The rest, as they say, is history. Now, that was six years after these goals were read into the record, keep in mind. Now, as we were becoming more degenerate, or I guess liberated, in our morality with regard to promiscuity and homosexuality, in 1922, the Bolsheviks in Russia also removed laws against homosexuality from the criminal code. The first Communist Party government also decriminalized homosexuality and transgenderism in most of the USSR, but then in 1933, with the assumption of power of Joseph Stalin, Article 121 was signed into law recriminalizing homosexuality, with raids and arrests being an accepted enforcement method and up to five years in prison if found guilty. Now, this was in direct opposition to what they saw in the United States, saying they were fighting against the, quote, deviant behavior and Western degeneracy. Lesbians were generally sent to mental institutions rather than prison, as the communists, I would say rightly in my opinion, classified homosexuality as a mental illness. Now, I'd say a mental combined with a spiritual sickness, but, but they were in the ballpark at least there. Now, homosexuality wasn't really accepted in any way in the USSR until the late 1980s, once again under Gorbachev, and it was declassified as a mental illness in 1999. Of course, as we read in Romans 1, man did what they wanted to do with other men, applying to women as well, and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. In 1981, the first case of AIDS was reported in the United States. Oddly enough, the CDC, after doing, you know, some investigating, they found that there were in fact many cases of AIDS in gay men, along with pneumonia, other infections, and a rare aggressive cancer. If only, if only, there was some warning that if uh, men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, you know, committing shameless acts with men, that they'd, eh, I don't know, receive in themselves due penalty for their error? I mean, wait, that sounds like what I just said a, just a few seconds ago. Yeah, doesn't matter. In contrast, the first documented case of AIDS in the USSR was diagnosed in 1987, six years later. Of course, 
By now, the Russian Federation, or Russia, has eclipsed the U.S. per capita for HIV infection, but look how long they tried to enforce, for lack of a better term, morality, and look how fast we gave it up. Now, I can't prove that the communists were at the heart of our slide into the degenerate, godless disaster we find ourselves in now, but do we, as the typical American, look at promiscuity, homosexuality, and degeneracy as normal, as acceptable, like the goal? Well, according to a Gallup poll from 2022, when looking at acceptance of gay marriage by those attending church, and note, this does not mean they're Christians, just that they go to church, it appears that for those that go weekly, we're now at about a 40% acceptance of homosexual marriage. Uh, Those that go nearly weekly to monthly, they're at a 70% acceptance rate. And your typical creasters, right, the ones that, eh, they just go every once in a while, well, they accept it at a rate of 82%. A Pew Research poll of 2020 found that about 57% of self-reported Christians believe that sex between unmarried adults that are in a committed relationship is either always or sometimes okay. 50% of Christians believe that casual sex between consenting adults is okay. Now, only 18% think that an open relationship is okay. But 19% think that that first date sex? Oh, yeah, that's either always or sometimes okay. According to an article from 2020 by MissionFrontiers.org, it was found that there are currently around 42 million porn sites on the Internet, and over 40 million Americans visit those sites on a regular basis. The revenue it generates is more than the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB combined. Nearly half of families in the United States report that porn is a problem in their home. Nearly 100% of children will have seen porn by 14 years old. 56% of divorces have at least one party with an, quote, obsessive interest in porn. 68% of church-attending men and 50% of pastors admit to viewing porn regularly. 87% of Christian women have admitted to viewing porn, although this was not classified as regular viewing. 70% of youth pastors have had at least one teen come to them for help in the past 12 months. 59% of pastors say they have married men coming for help. 57% of pastors say porn addiction is their biggest problem in the church. And 69% of pastors say it's adversely affected their church. Now, like I said, I can't prove that the communists were the driving force behind our slide into degeneracy in America. In fact, I feel very comfortable saying that sin as a general concept or force is more than enough to have driven the United States down this road. But remember, these are goals for America. I don't think they care how they're accomplished, just that they're accomplished. So I think we can give this a solid check, a complete, a mission accomplished. And that puts us at 18.5 out of 26 goals accomplished. Okay, so looking at where we are for time... And looking at the next goal, I'm going to skip goal number 27 for now. I kind of have a feeling this one may be a segment unto itself. Goal 28 may be a little bit quicker to cover in the time we have remaining. So next week, we'll hit goal number 27. Somebody remind me. Okay, goal number 28, quote, Eliminate prayer or any phase of religious expression in the schools on the ground that it violates the principle of separation of church and state. 
So back in 2017 and 2018, I worked up a lesson series for my elementary Sunday school class called America, a Christian Nation. I tried to give them a solid view of where we started, all the Christian principles, the Christian people that started this country, etc., etc. It was a fairly good series of lessons. It was 219 typed pages. And believe it or not, I looked it up, 1,150 PowerPoint slides most of which consist of maybe one or two pictures or a map or something like that. But still, that's a lot of slides. Anyway, one of the sections of this lesson series was education in America. I'm obviously not going to go through all of that, but I started it, and I'm going to summarize it here, with the first iteration of public education starting back in the early colonist days. Now, they wanted to teach the basics, you know, math, reading, writing. In 1690, the first New England primer was produced and published. This primer, in various editions, was actually used until around 1900. And this was considered to be about a first grade level. And the primer started with a, quote, divine song of praise to God for a child. It reads as follows. How glorious is our heavenly king who reigns above the sky. How shall a child presume to sing his dreadful majesty? That doesn't rhyme, but don't worry about it. How great his power is none can tell, nor think how large his grace, nor men below, nor saints that dwell on high before his face. Then let me join this holy train and my first offerings bring. The eternal God will not disdain to hear an infant sing. My heart resolves, my tongue obeys, and angels shall rejoice to hear their mighty Maker's praise sound from a feeble voice. Now, most often we hear of the way that they learned their alphabet. I've I've heard this, I don't know how many places, but to give you just a little idea. A. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. B. Heaven defined, the Bible mind. C. Christ crucified for sinners died. D. The deluge drowned the earth around. E. Elijah hid by ravens fed. F. The judgment made Felix afraid. And on it goes, every letter with a biblical truth. Now moving into 1824, the American spelling book by Noah Webster, we thumb through and just pick a random spot. In table 22, entitled Words Not Exceeding Three Syllables, we find the following sentences. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Virtue exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And the law of the wise is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Then we go to the original McGuffey Reader from the mid-1800s. It had some very basic stuff, but then as you move farther into it, the start of reading simple sentences, we find the following. My son, do not act bad. Go not in the way of bad boys. A bad boy has woe. He can have no joy. If you tell a lie, you will be a bad boy. Now, by the time we get to the revised McGuffey of the early 1900s, the bibliocentric or even the moral-centric nature of these textbooks is pretty much gone. And then we get to the mid-50s and the Dick and Jane books. I mean, it taught reading, and it also is just taught reading. That's all it really did, just taught just inane reading. On June 25th, 1962, now remember our timeline here, the Supreme Court heard Angle v. Vitale, 
uh, or Vital, I'm not really sure, that stated a prayer developed and approved by the New York Board of Regents to be used in schools, uh, they said that violated the First Amendment. In 1963, the Supreme Court again in Abington School District v. Shemp decided that the Bible reading by the school to the kids also violated the First Amendment. And both of these, of course, were argued on the grounds that they violated the separation of church and state. Now, where did I just hear that? So just a quick side note. The separation of church and state is not a Declaration of Independence thing. It's not a Constitution thing. It's not a Bill of Rights or an Amendment thing. It's literally not a law, a rule, an ordinance, or in any way, shape, or form, anything. It's quite literally found in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1802 in response to questions sent to him by the Danbury, Connecticut Baptist Association. They wanted to make sure that this newly formed government and its constitution wasn't going to try to mandate any sort of religion on the church. Now, this is where Jefferson replied, quote, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence, that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. This wall he spoke of was a one-way wall. The intent that the state would stay out of the church is what he meant, but this in no way meant or intended that the church was to stay out of the state. The only reason that this can be used in any way in a court today is because a previous court used it that way, and then another, and then it became precedent, not law. And here we sit. As of very recent, we've had some slight wins in the Supreme Court, very slight, but positive. Of course, the kids have always had the rights, more or less, to worship, pray, and read their Bible, just the teachers and the administration, they're the ones that have had their rights of citizenship stripped from them in the workplace. Of course, we have the ACLU coming in and screeching every time they get a whiff of, well, not really religion so much, but Christian religion showing up where they believe it shouldn't be. We've had people go to court to remove the Pledge of Allegiance, or if not that, maybe uh, maybe just that pesky under God part, etc., etc. And now the teachers' unions, and remember... Unions are communist by design, as are public schools. Now, the teachers' unions are fighting to not only keep parents out, but shove indoctrination in. And not indoctrination of Christian principles. No, no, no. no. LGBT principles, woke principles, social justice, racism, rebellion principles. In short, anything and everything, no matter what, as long as it's not only not Christian, but preferably anti-Christian. So again, did the communists make this happen? Well, I mean, the timing, a few years after the goals were revealed, and right at the time they were read into the record, I mean, it kind of seems suspicious, doesn't it? Right? Regardless, was prayer eliminated? Was religious expression eliminated? Do the lawsuits try over and over to use the separation of church and state? <laughs> Boy, howdy, do they ever. So, where do we stand on this? Well, I mean, I think there's no doubt that this has been accomplished as well, which, in my opinion, moves us to 19.5 
out of the 27 goals that we've looked at thus far. That's a grade of 72%. We're climbing steadily into that solid C range. And unlike my college days, this C is not a good thing or a welcome sight. And with that, my little comrades, we'll bring this look at our 45 communist goals for America to a close. So until next time, just remember, in America, you can always find a party. In Soviet Russia, the party can always find you. <laughs> okay, no more accent. No, I can't promise that. No more Yakov. Well, for now. Bye. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.